sure, we can sequence a genome, but when it comes to actually interpreting what any given mutation might mean in terms of your health, that's pretty hard. But if you have that many health records connected to that many genomes, then actually you do have the lens to start to say, well, this variant has on average this effect on this aspects of your health. And I think that's quite powerful. So we have to build it. We have to build that data set in order to understand the human genome and go beyond just sequencing the human genome. Welcome to the Illumina Genomics Podcast, where leading scientists discuss their genomics research and how genomics is shaping their understanding of science and nature. Here's your host, Paul Broman. Well, hello, everyone, and welcome to episode 43 of the Genomics Podcast, and thanks for joining us. Today, we're talking about rare diseases and the impact of genomics on rare disease research. So imagine that you're the parent of a child who is sick, and I mean really sick. You would probably want to take them to see a physician right away, and you would probably fully expect to get answers about what's making your child sick. And based on those answers, you would then probably expect that your child would get medical treatment to make them better. But what if you couldn't get answers? What if the modern healthcare system that we all rely on to keep us healthy couldn't tell you what was wrong with your child and couldn't tell you how to make them better? It sounds like a nightmare, but this nightmare can sometimes become reality for parents of children that suffer a rare disorder. Rare disorders are defined as affecting fewer than 200,000 people in the United States. And some of these disorders are ultra-rare, meaning that they affect far fewer individuals than that. My guest today is Dr. Matt Might, Hugh Call Endowed Chair in Personalized Medicine and Director of the Hugh Call Precision Medicine Institute at the University of Alabama, Birmingham. Matt's son Bertrand has a rare disorder and was actually the first person ever to be diagnosed with this particular disorder. Matt's experiences in seeking answers for Bertrand led him to become one of the top experts on rare disease genetics. They also led him all the way to the White House, where he served as strategist for the U.S. Precision Medicine Initiative. Matt joined me for an informative and inspirational discussion on the power of genomics and big data in rare disease research and precision medicine. Matt, I want to thank you for spending some time and joining us on the show. I want to welcome you to the Genomics Podcast. We were talking a bit before, and I told you that I heard you talk at Illumina. You gave a talk about your work, and I was just really blown away by the science that you presented, and also about this vision that you have for precision medicine and enabling that. I think I was even more blown away by your personal story, and I think we'll get into that a little bit. But I thought a good place to start would be at the beginning. And you started your academic career as an expert in computer science, right? Your focus was on cybersecurity algorithms and on data analysis. And you had no background in medicine, no background in biology, no background in healthcare. And you've now transitioned into a really distinguished career in precision medicine and healthcare. So can you talk a little bit about what drove you into making that pretty radical transition? Sure. So the move into medicine has been entirely driven by my personal life. 
So my oldest son, Bertrand, who's 11 years old now, was the first case ever discovered of an ultra-rare genetic disorder called Engli-1 deficiency. So just getting to that diagnosis took a lot. I learned a lot in that process. It was an education in genetics, if you will. And then in the aftermath where I tried to look for therapies for him, there was a second education in, I think, what we now call precision medicine. So for me, the motivation is personal. It's my son, Bertrand. He is the reason that I shift from academic computer science into academic precision medicine. I know that Bertrand really inspired you to do this work. And you mentioned that Bertrand has something called Engli-1 deficiency. Did you say that he was the first genetic case of this disorder that had been characterized? Yes, he was the first patient discovered with this disease. One of the things that you intimated and you talked about when you came to Illumina that I'd like to explore a little bit is how some of these patients undergo this genetic or diagnostic odyssey. And what I mean by diagnostic odyssey is this really protracted period of time when the family and the physicians are performing a battery of medical and diagnostic tests, really looking for answers about what is affecting their patients. Can you talk a little bit about what that diagnostic odyssey is like for a child with a rare disorder and also for a parent of a child with a rare disorder? Yeah, so I can tell you from firsthand experience that it is a profoundly disturbing process as a parent where you can see your child is suffering. And in our case, Bertrand had seizures, he had a movement disorder, he had a severe developmental delay, he had a lack of tears, which led to all sorts of issues with his eyes. We didn't know what was happening to him. And that's the way it is for basically everybody on these diagnostic odysseys is they see the suffering or they experience the suffering firsthand, but they don't know why. You just don't know why it is that you've got these symptoms. And you spend a large fraction of your time, and in some cases your money, going to specialists, looking for answers, trying to find the root cause of what's wrong with you. And in some cases, you almost feel crazy because you think, you know, why can nobody figure out what this is? It's got to be something, right? Right. And how long was that diagnostic odyssey in Bertrand's case? For Bertrand, it was about four and a half years. Four and a half years to have no idea why he was suffering so much. So can you explain to our listeners, what is Engli-1? What does it do? Why do we need it? Yeah, so Engli-1 is a deglycosylation enzyme, which means it removes glycans from glycoproteins. And Engli-1 specifically, the understanding of its original purpose was that it was supposed to deglycosylate misfolded glycoproteins. And it does that. It does deglycosylate misfolded glycoproteins so that the glycans, these sugars come off, and then the proteins go away into the proteasome. So it basically enables recycling of glycoproteins. That was our original understanding of this enzyme. Over time, it has shifted a little bit. So we understand now that not everything that gets deglycosylated by Engli-1 is a misfolded glycoprotein. So NERF-1 is the prime example of this now. It, in fact, requires deglycosylation in order to activate. And we suspect that there are other genes as well that could be like this, where in the absence of Engli-1, in the absence of deglycosylation, they're not going to be active either. In the patients who have had this genetic disorder, is it only one DNA variant that's been characterized, or are there other Engli-1 mutations that are known? There's dozens at this point. What's interesting, though, is that they're all pretty skewed towards clear loss of function. So their premature stops or their frame shifts, there's very little missense among the population. And of the missense mutations that have been characterized, they're protein null. So it's a severe enough missense that it knocks out the protein entirely. I'd like to spend a little bit of time talking about this interesting paper that you and your colleagues recently published in Human Molecular Genetics in 2018. And you were trying to understand the mechanism of Engli-1 deficiency, and you were using 
fruit flies as a model organism for that. So you knock down expression of NGLI1 and you look for phenotypes in the flies. And I really like this approach of using invertebrate models for human disease because there are a lot of things you can do with invertebrates that you can't necessarily do with uh, mammalian models. But I do know that NGLI1 has been knocked out in mice, and that particular mutation is embryonic lethal. So it's obviously got a pretty huge phenotype in mice. Why did you and your colleagues choose fruit flies as a model organism for NGLI1? And in this paper, what did you find about the NGLI1 deficiency in these flies? Great questions. So the collaborator here was Clement Chow in his lab at Utah. And the reason we picked flies is that flies are pretty easy to manipulate. You can do pretty remarkable stuff with them. Not only can you knock out NGLI1 and just specific tissue types, but you can get down to like the subtypes of neurons even until the phenotype goes away. So you can really pinpoint where phenotype is coming from in a disorder with flies. I've been so impressed with what you can do with them so inexpensively and at scale. And you also mentioned that the mice, if you knock out NGLI1, they die. It's embryonic lethal. That makes it- Not much you can do with that. Yeah, it's hard to work with that. Have you been using the flies for any kind of screening for small molecules or any other kind of potential therapeutics for NGLI1? We have, in fact. So there was a, a company that existed up until recently called Perlara, run by Ethan Perlstein. And the first project he ever did was set up drug screening projects for NGLI1 in model organisms. And so he focused on flies and on worms and got really compelling hits. He just published this on BioArchive, in fact. Yeah, this is very recent work. And there's a number of new compounds that now have to be validated in some models to see if we can put these in patients. I would imagine for these kinds of ultra-rare and even rare genetic disorders, that's kind of a bottleneck in the process, right? It's very difficult to convince a pharmaceutical company to take that project on. In the case of NGLI1 deficiency, we're talking about not hundreds of patients, we're talking about tens of patients. So has that been a big challenge for you? Yeah, it's a challenge, although I have found that it's still possible to engage pharma on this. So NGLI1.org, our foundation, is actually engaged in a three-way partnership with a drug company, Retrofin, and NIH through NCATS on a drug discovery effort, which is actually going quite well. And I think part of the reason we were able to get interest from industry is we focused on a couple things. We focused on organizing the community so that someday, if there were a clinical trial that needed to be conducted, we could rapidly recruit that community into a trial. Um, And believe it or not, that makes a big difference. It eliminates a lot of the late stage risk for pharma where failure to recruit actually makes a big difference in whether or not they can get their compounds approved. The other thing we focused on was de-risking the science. And that's where partnerships with folks like Ethan and Clement Chow really became valuable so that we could understand enough of the biology to identify targets and to identify compounds that could serve as the basis for drug development. And within, I think, three or four years, we actually hit that point where we we had drug targets. We had candidates to hit those targets. And it got to the point where Retrofin said, yeah, we can invest in a drug discovery program for this now, even though there's only tens of patients. Within this paper, you're using RNA sequencing or RNA-seq to look at the fly transcriptome in both wild-type flies as well as flies where NGLI1 was knocked down. And my transcriptome, for those listeners who don't know, we're talking about just sequencing all of the RNA molecules in an organism, in this case in a fly. So how did this kind of analysis of the entire transcriptome inform your study of NGLI1 in these knockdown flies? Yeah, so the goal here was, in a hypothesis freeway, say, what's going on with these flies? And by extension, what could be happening in the patients too? So just by looking at what's knocked up and what's knocked down, you start to get a sense of what's happening as a consequence of missing NGLI1. This data continues to be valuable for checking hypotheses as they show up. 
Really? Yeah, because some of the drugs that came out of the work from Ethan Perlstein's screening were uh, dopamine agonists or dopamine receptor agonists. And so we could check, well, what are the flies telling us about this? Well, it turns out that there were some dopaminergic genes that were downregulated in the flies. It may explain some of the reasons we saw rescue in the flies. I don't think that's even in the paper. But yeah, that data continues to be valuable as other hypotheses come out. I understand you were a strategist in the executive offices of the president of the United States, and you worked in both the Obama and Trump administrations. You were influential in bringing something at the White House to life here in the U.S., something called the Precision Medicine Initiative. So I was wondering if you could just briefly describe what you mean by the concept of precision medicine and describe how that precision medicine initiative got off the ground, where it's going today. And then finally, how did you get involved in the public policy side of this debate? Precision medicine, the unifying definition that I've come up with, and that seems to work with President Obama's original definition, is that precision medicine is all about optimizing health with data. And obviously, a big and important piece of data is now your genome or your tumor's genome, and it's finally become a clinically accessible entity. And so I think we're dealing with the ramifications of that. And the Precision Medicine Initiative was in many ways anticipating this and trying to lay a scientific foundation for the clinical reality of precision and genomic medicine. So the biggest part of the Precision Medicine Initiative is what is now called the All of Us program. This is enrolling a million Americans and getting their health records, getting their genetic data, questionnaire data, and basically all the other data we can get about them into a common database so that it will create what I would call the Rosetta Stone of the human genome. So the issue oftentimes with genomic medicine is that, sure, we can sequence a genome, but when it comes to actually interpreting what any given mutation might mean in terms of your health, that's pretty hard. But if you have that many health records connected to that many genomes, then actually you do have the lens to start to say, well, this variant has on average this effect on this aspects of your health. And I think that's quite powerful. So we have to build it. We have to build that data set in order to understand the human genome and go beyond just sequencing the human genome. And by the way, I mean, anybody can enroll in all of us right now. It is now open for enrollment. It's doing quite well. It is building that data set. And any American can take part in that. That's awesome. So it just recently got started, right? It got kicked off not too long ago. Yeah. So I think the big launch was last spring and UAB happens to be one of the big enrollment sites. So we're coordinating enrollment from many parts of the South and allowing Americans to volunteer for this major undertaking that will lead to critical breakthroughs in our understanding of the genome. And then ultimately someday to clinical applications of those interpretations too. So you mentioned that UAB is now a site. You're director at UAB of the Hugh Call Precision Medicine Institute, and you're currently working on driving precision medicine forward in a really practical way. But can you talk about how your experience as a, a data person, a computer scientist, has helped you to create data analysis solutions for this large-scale precision medicine genomics analysis initiative? And also, if you can talk a little bit about something that I heard you talk about recently, which is called MediCanRen. It's an artificial intelligence algorithm that enables precision medicine. It's interesting. I feel like I ended up at the right place at the right time. A computer scientist just sort of drafted into medicine. I think we just think differently about medicine as a consequence of our training. But initially, it, it almost led me astray. Initially, when I was trying to work on Bertrand stuff, I thought, I'm going to do everything as a computational simulation. And I realized very quickly how hard that was. And in many cases, the best computer you have is nature itself. A genetically modified fly could be far more powerful than a supercomputer in many cases. 
so I actually went very wet biological first. And then I've come back over time and said, oh, well, you know what? Actually, there's a lot you can do with computer science and medicine. It wasn't necessarily immediately applicable to NGLI-1, but for broad spectrum precision medicine, there's a big role for computer science and artificial intelligence in particular, I think. So we have built this tool called MediCanron. It's actually built on top of a reasoning engine called MiniCanron that we worked with for years when we were doing cybersecurity work. It's a logical reasoning tool. It's actually called a logic programming language. It's even a little deeper than that. It's a relational programming language. It's capable of doing all sorts of automated reasoning. And we've pushed it to its limit to do amazing things on the computer science side. But now what we've done is we've repurposed it. And we have dumped in all kinds of biomedical data sets as part of the NCATS translator program. This is another NIH program. So for example, it is using all of PubMed, Every abstract in PubMed has been digested using natural language processing, and all that data has been fed into MediCanron. So it knows facts from X inhibits Y or Q treats R, and it can stitch those things together to actually form arguments about what could be therapeutic for what. And we're finding that this is a pretty powerful approach to take, particularly when you start to reason across data sets. So that when you combine data sets, you end up with things that you never could have figured out from a single data set alone. So the two queries we end up asking most of the time are, how do we increase the activity of this gene or how do we decrease the activity of this gene? When you're trying to help a specific patient, so often it comes down to that right there. And so it's really geared towards answering those questions very specifically right now. Under the hood, there's a full programming language you can write any query in, and we sometimes use that too. But yeah, it's open and available to anybody that wants to try it. And we find it routinely useful in helping the patients that reach out to us and identifying potential research for them that's of interest or studies that they might want to conduct. And in some cases, it will even result in the construction of a research report. That's a report that we can send to a physician and have them review in case they want to use that information to modify the treatment of a patient. And you do all that in-house? That's all done in-house. That's all done at UAB at the Precision Medicine Institute. I think it's an innovative program. I don't know of any other program like this. We're actually half of the coordinating center for the Undiagnosed Diseases Network with Harvard. And for our half, for the patients in the UDN that get a diagnosis, they can be referred to us for a research plan workup that will guide them on a therapeutic odyssey, if you will. And so now we're talking about therapeutic odysseys in addition to diagnostic odysseys. But now the goal is, okay, we know the root cause of this disease. Let's find a way to treat it. And I think what we're laying down is the principles of how to do exactly that. So we even have condensed it into what we call the algorithm for precision medicine. It's this step-by-step process. It's in a flow chart that sort of steps you from one state in this odyssey to the next. I would like to know, I'm sure my listeners would like to know, how's Bertrand doing today? How is he doing right now? Yeah, I mean, all things considered, Bertrand is doing quite well. He's now 11 years old, who was given a three-year life expectancy. And he's happy. Relatively speaking, he is healthy. And he can see very clearly his vision is fine. He has no seizures down from, I think early on it was hundreds per day. I mean, it was just almost nonstop. He was having so many that we would hook him up to an EEG. We didn't realize that these things were seizures, but he was having them almost constantly. And it's been a dramatic transformation in quality of life for him. And of course, for us as well. We've found more and more treatments for NGLI1 over time. Each one has helped a little bit. And if you add those up over time, you make a big difference in the quality of life for these patients. So Bertrand is doing very well. He is very happy all day, every day. And what I tell folks is that for any process, the ultimate metric is the one you measure in smiles per hour. So Bertrand is succeeding on that front. I have to assume that you're a pretty optimistic guy because a lot of us, when we hear a diagnosis like that for our child, it would be really easy to just completely collapse. So you must be a glass half full kind of guy. So with that optimism for the future, 
I wonder if you can spend a few minutes to discuss what is the future going to look like? What are we likely to see in the field of precision medicine and genomics? Yeah, so you're absolutely right. I'm definitely an optimist. And I really took his diagnosis as a challenge to do whatever I could as a parent to help him. And I'm in many ways just surprised at how far we've been able to go. But I think looking forward, we're going to go much further. Precision medicine is young. It's early days. I'm already excited by the successes, but if you want to break it into two halves, roughly, I think we can talk about each of those independently. So the first half would be precision diagnostics, the process of going from data to an answer, in this case, a genome to an answer. Right now, if you look at intractable diagnostic odysseys, a genome will get you an answer in about a third of those cases, which to me is high and low. It's amazing that we can short-circuit these odysseys in a third of the cases, and it's depressing that we can't for the other two-thirds where we're pretty sure the answer is in there and we just can't find it. So it tells me we have a long way to go in terms of genomic variant interpretation, but it's advancing rapidly. And I think that that diagnostic yield probably over the next five years will rise to about two-thirds as we get deeper into transcriptomics, clinical transcriptomics. There's some awesome data coming out of Jana MacArthur's lab at the Broad where they were doing targeted RNA-seq and finding, in fact, that about two-thirds of cases they were getting an answer. That was really impressive to hear that by looking at expression, you can spot variants that would otherwise be very difficult to find from a genome alone. So I think over time, over the next 10 years, you're going to see that diagnostic yield go from 33%, probably to two-thirds, and then hopefully someday almost 100% when it comes to genetic disorders. There's no reason that if you have a genetic disorder that we can't find it or we shouldn't find it in your genome. I really do believe that. And then on the other half of precision medicine, precision therapeutics, I think at the moment, if a sort of random patient reaches out to us, we know that there's about a 5 to 8% chance that that initial interaction will lead very quickly to the construction of a research report. We've engaged our AI tools and in some way found something that we think could impact the mechanism inside that disease. So again, to me, that's high and low. The people that are reaching out, they've tried everything. They tried everything that you can do clinically, so they're turning to research as their next step. And that's why they're reaching out to us as a research institute. So I see that number going up over time, too. In fact, we just integrated a new perturbogenic data set into Medicanrin. And by this, I mean something that looks at the impact of drugs on the transcriptome. And it suddenly has warmed up some cold cases where we knew what the next step was, we knew what the target was, but we couldn't find a compound to actually modify that. And suddenly, in these cases which have been frozen for months, we're finding compounds again. And so I haven't recalculated the percentage of what's gone actionable as a result, but it's clear that as more data sets come in, more and more will become actionable. So I don't know how high that number is going to be over the next 10 years, but it'll be as high as it possibly can if I have anything to say about it. Well, Matt, I want to really thank you so much for taking the time. I know you're a super busy guy, for taking the time to explain some of the genetics of rare diseases and give us your vision for the future. I think it's a really exciting future, and I'm really glad that you're doing all of this work. Really, thank you for joining us on the Genomics Podcast. Well, thank you. It's really been a pleasure. Even though rare diseases like Bertrand's can be individually rare, collectively, these diseases are relatively common. In fact, as many as 25 million Americans and 30 million Europeans may be affected by a rare disease. Building large data sets of genomic and health data has the potential to transform our understanding of rare diseases. And next-generation sequencing, or NGS technology, has the potential to serve as a viable diagnostic approach to identify rare inherited diseases and to resolve the diagnostic odyssey. 
If you like today's show, subscribe to our podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get podcasts. You can also listen to our show from Siri, Alexa, or your Google Assistant. Just say, play the Illumina Genomics Podcast. Join me next time when I'll be talking with Professor Warwick Grant, head of the Genetics Department at La Trobe University in Melbourne, Australia. We'll be discussing the genomics of river blindness, a parasitic disease that's actually the world's second leading infectious cause of blindness, right here on the Illumina Genomics Podcast. Podcast.